Welcome to the Mission North Shore podcast. If you'd like to know more about our ministry here at the Mission, visit us online at www.themissionnorthshore.org. Thanks for listening. God bless. As we've opened our Bibles, Lord, help us to open our hearts and our minds to receive from you. Lord, this is your holy word that you sent to change and transform our lives. So we don't want to take this time lightly. In fact, we want to give it the full of our attention. Lord, speak to us now in Jesus' holy name. Amen. I do want to just follow up on last week and and check on how we did with our application last week, because I gave a little bit of homework last week. Anybody remember the three things we were meant to do? Number one was what? Yeah, we were, it's all be a Barnabas, yeah, but that, that's true. But, but what, was, what was number one? Pray. But pray specific, right? For who? Somebody that, that has a hardened heart. Somebody that we've either long given up on or view as way beyond God. The, the second thing was what? Anybody remember? Intentional encouragement. That's right. You were going to pick somebody out and intentionally encourage them. Call them up. Take them to coffee. Did anybody do that this week? Raise your hand. I want to know how we're doing. So like three of you guys, really? Like I, right now, I just feel like I'm out of here. You guys aren't paying attention. Intentionally encourage. The third one, hopefully we did a little better on. The third one was what? To speak life. To speak life. So, so everybody that we talked to, we were going to be very mindful of the way that we spoke to them. And we were going to memorize Ephesians 4.29. Anybody want to come up and try it? No? No bold takers that memorized it want to come up and try it? All right, we'll put it up there for you then. There it is. Let no unwholesome word proceed from your mouth, but only such a word which is good for edification according to the need of the moment so that it will give grace to all who hear. How many people actually did this this week? We're, we're mindful. doesn't mean that you spoke life to everybody because every once in a while we slip up and say something we didn't mean to, right? We got a bad attitude, whatever. I have that sometimes. But we were, we were intentional about trying to do it. Anybody do that this week? What did you figure out when you did that this week? It's life-giving, isn't it? Like, like, I was really mindful. I'd go into a, a store or something, and, and whoever the clerk was, I, I really was mindful. Let me speak life to this person. Like, like let me t- tell them, you know, something encouraging today. And, and you, you see people light up. Like, you, you say, man, thank you so much. I hope you have a, a phenomenal day, and you're just completely, and they're like, wow, nobody said that to me today. It was life-giving. Okay, so with this Ephesians 4, but, but, I was going to ask how many memorized it, but I've already given up on asking. Here, here's the deal. Memorizing it's great, living it is better. And so that's what, what we want to do. And that's our follow-up from last week. So we're going to continue now in our series in the book of Acts, and we're going to begin to look at chapter 10. So turn with me to Acts uh, chapter 10. Next week, we're going to get into this whole thing of Acts chapter 10, and we're going to see... Uh, what happens between Peter and Cornelius and how the gospel is sent to the Gentiles through Peter and Cornelius. But this week, we're only going to focus on this guy, Cornelius. 
I set out this week to teach the whole of chapter 10, but as soon as I read the description of the character of this guy Cornelius, before he received the gospel, I realized something. I realized that it speaks to the way that a lot of people think and approach God, heaven, hell, and spiritual things, salvation, and such as that. So this focus on Cornelius brings up something that the church is confronted with all the time when we try to share salvation with people. And it goes like this. Maybe you've heard this. Maybe you've attempted to share the gospel with somebody and you were trying to explain to them forgiveness of sin and salvation through Christ alone only to have them reply to you, thanks, but no thanks, I'm doing just fine because I'm a good person. Anybody ever heard that? I've heard it countless times, right? I'm doing just fine. I try my best. I don't rip people off. I take care of my family. I try to help people out when I can. I'm a good person. And and even sometimes people will say something to the fact, I'm actually even a spiritual person. I, I believe in a higher power, though I don't define it as Jesus. And I'll even pray to that power, however they defined that on occasion. Anybody ever heard things along those lines when you've tried to say, hey, you need to be forgiven? No, I'm actually a really good person. I've even heard people say, kind of on the more militant side of that, if that's not good enough for God, like the way I live my life, if me being a good person, the way I take care of my family, and the way I help people, if that's not good enough for God, I don't want anything to do with that kind of a God. Anybody ever heard that side of it? Yeah, you hear that sometimes. So, so we're talking about somebody in this case that believes in some form of a God, however they have defined it. And we're talking about somebody in this case who is by their own good deeds and virtues expecting to find favor with that God. So it is a works-based type of a salvation, and it is very, very common in and among the people around us right now. And it's not surprising that when humanity makes up their own way to heaven, that it would come out as a works-based system. That's not surprising because, and we see it even in the world religions and the cults, virtually all of those are work-based. So when man makes up the system, it's not surprising to find it becoming works-based because humanity is what? Performance-oriented, aren't we? Like we value people on how well they perform. We greatly value and reward people when they work hard. We say things like that guy earned it, right? If that person got a promotion or something good happened to that person, we say they earned it. We value hard work. And so we're, a, we're a, really a performance-based type of people. And, and so when it comes to matters of religion and salvation, our tendency then is to take that works-based kind of mentality into our faith. And so if I do well enough, if if I'm good enough, if I jump through enough hoops, if I perform well enough, then I'll be accepted by God, right? That's often how people think. That's often how the cults think. That's how every single major religion thinks. 
The problem with that is that it is completely opposite of the gospel, isn't it? Absolutely the opposite. Now, the reason that I thought it was worth spending an entire morning this morning talking about this particular approach and the way that some people think about being good enough to get into heaven is because there's millions and millions of people right around us every single day that think this way. There's a question that's often asked by evangelists when they're trying to spark up a a conversation, and and it can be quite telling. So oftentimes, somebody will walk up to somebody, maybe somebody they know at work, and, and, and they'll say something to this effect. If you were to die today, like, like let's just say right now you had a massive heart attack, a brain aneurysm, and you got hit by a truck all at once, and you died like right here, right now, and you get there to those pearly gates, and God's standing on the other side, and he asks you, why should I let you in? What would you say? And if you ask that question of very many people out in the world today, what do they say? Well, I have, and then they go on to explain why they've been such a good person and why they should be accepted in. That is the thought process and the system that so many around us today have come to. And I was thinking about this this week, and I thought that, you know, something strange has happened in America over the past few decades. A lot of people today will, will define America as a post-Christian nation, and that's a little bit debated, but, but they'll define it that way. And what they generally mean when somebody says a post-Christian nation is that America at one point was predominantly Christian, right? Or at the very least, they're saying that there was a time in American history where biblical values were a more prominent part of American culture. I don't think that's hard to see, is it? Like we would all agree that there was a time in our history of America where biblical values were a more prominent part. Would everybody kind of agree with that? It's kind of easy to see, isn't it? We see it in the laws that are being enacted and being proposed. Things, you know, like... Uh, gay marriage and gender issues and abortion and these things that have been able to be wrangled over the last few decades. We see that didn't really happen 50 years ago. Now it's happening more and more in these days. We see it in the movie and the TVs and the video games that are played, right? Much of what we consider now entertainment 30, 40, 50 years ago would have not been accepted and almost seen as an abomination. So generations past would not have accepted those things as entertainment or even accepted them as acceptable to watch, right? So, so we see this thing. I just thought about this. Maybe I'll share it with you. Um, yeah, we got time, right? I was in Mililani because we're talking about what's acceptable from a generation past, right? I was in Mililani and walking by the theater there, middle of the day, and there was the cutest little elderly couple going up to watch a movie. And you know how you have to talk through the speaker? Um, And so the lady was speaking really loud. Like, I guess she thought she had to yell to get through the little speaker thing. And they were super, super cute. They were going to a midday matinee. And she's reading the board, and there's this guy behind the thing, he's probably 16, 17 year old. He just works there. He doesn't care about anything. He's just looking for time off so he can go play his video game, whatever he does. But this little old lady's looking at all the movies and she goes, what is this 50 shades of gray thing here? 
And, and I stopped because I had to hear what the guy was going to say. I mean, this is like probably close to his great-grandma. And this poor guy's just melting back there. And she just pressed it. And she goes, he goes, you know, I don't, you know. Uh, uh. And, and she goes, just give me a general idea. <laughs> and I had to stop. I just stood there because I wanted to hear what he said. And he just sitting there sweating eventually said, I don't know, you know, and I have no idea what it is. And he, of course, he was lying to her. But, you know, it, it kind of shows that, that something that would have clearly not been acceptable then, and he was mindful of that, is now right there in the big screen. The point of all that is this, is that there has been this clear pivot in America away from these biblical values, right? There's been this clear pivot away from Christ. But here's what I found interesting about it. It hasn't been a pivot to atheism. It's not as if most Americans are going, we don't believe in any form of a God, nor has it been a pivot to another major world religion or a cult. So it's not as if Buddhism took off and all the Christians just turned Buddhist. That's not what happened. What's happened more times than not is that this attitude has developed that we mentioned above. I'm a good person. I do my best. I don't rip anybody off. I take care of my family. I try to help people out. I'm still kind of spiritual a little bit, may pray on occasion to whatever I think that God might be. That's become the more common view. You see, that's why I thought it was so important to spend a morning on this because there's this kind of secular spiritualism out there now that's really, really undefined. And that type of an individual, and you know some of them, are often very, very hard to share the gospel with because they're often actually really good people as far as people go, right? Oftentimes their behavior is better than many of the Christians that that they know. And so why do I need to become a Christian? I act better than the Christians that I know. And and so they're hard to share the gospel with because they don't have that necessarily felt need for forgiveness that someone who has lived clearly a rough and hurtful life may feel a real felt need to, to have forgiveness and they may be easier to reach as opposed to somebody who's living, at least compared to the rest of humanity, a pretty good life. And so then there's a lot of people around us, aren't there, that struggle with this idea that good enough or that good is not good enough for God, right? There's a lot of people that struggle with that. Now, that was a really long intro <laughs> to get us to our text. But, but the point is this, this idea of being good enough to get to heaven is very much pictured in our text today. Now, the, the first half of chapter 9, if you remember back, we were dealing with Saul, right? Who we'll later call the Apostle Paul. His conversion, his time in Damascus, his time in Arabia, 15-day visit to Jerusalem, and then he was shipped off to Tarsus. And we noted that he'll now be in Tarsus for some eight to ten years before we hear from him again in Acts chapter 11. The second half of chapter 9 is Peter going out and kind of going on a bit of a mission trip himself. He's traveling around much as Jesus did, 
preaching the gospel. He heals a paralyzed man in Lydda. He raises a lady named Tabitha from from the dead in Joppa. And then he stays in Joppa for a little while. We're going to get into Peter and his time in Joppa and this whole thing next week. But meanwhile, as Saul is in Tarsus and Peter is in Joppa, we're introduced to this guy Cornelius in Acts chapter 10, verse 1. So look there. Acts chapter 10, verse 1. Now there was a man at Caesarea named Cornelius, a centurion of what was called the Italian cohort. So we find a couple things out about Cornelius right off the bat. One is that he lived in Caesarea. We've got like kind of a mock-up picture of what Caesarea would have looked like, maybe. I think we do. Is it there? There it is. You guys, many of you have been to Caesarea Maritima with me. We've sat in that theater and did a message in that theater that you see there at the bottom of the screen. But, but it was a very Roman city. It was built by Herod the Great himself. It was named after Caesar Augustus. It had that very Roman theater. It had a hippodrome for Roman games and horse races and chariot races. It had the huge um, harbor and a palace and a bathhouse like all Roman cities did. And all of the Roman prefects or governors would have lived here in Caesarea. So Pontius Pilate's regular residence was here in Caesarea. The second thing we find out about this guy Cornelius is that he's a Roman military officer in charge of a hundred men. So we we find that out. But but here's the most compelling thing, and this is where we're going this morning. Look at verse 2, the description of his character. Cornelius was what? A devout man, one who feared God with all of his household, and he gave many alms to the Jewish people, and he prayed to God continually. So Cornelius was kind of a good guy, wasn't he? Kind of guy that you want to hang out with. He was a spiritual guy, at least on some level, he believed, even though he, he didn't know of Jesus and hadn't heard the gospel yet, he had some belief in God. We know that. He was a genuine seeker. He was a family man because he led his household in this pursuit of God. He cared. He gave generously. It says that he gave many alms, which, which are charitable gifts that he was giving. He had a heart of compassion He was even giving them, it tells us, to the Jewish people who are the people that his army is oppressing. So he's a man that's got a heart of compassion, and it tells us that he is a man of prayer. Although he's not praying to Jesus, doesn't doesn't know Jesus yet, hasn't heard the gospel yet, the one thing we know about him is he's a genuine, earnest seeker in that capacity. By the Bible's own description, Cornelius is a great guy, isn't he? But here's the question. Is he saved? At that point in his life, is he saved? Did those things qualify him for heaven? Was being a good guy good enough? The answer is absolutely not. And we know that because of what happens next. Look at verse 3. About the ninth hour of the day, he clearly saw a vision of an angel of God who had just come in and said to him, Cornelius, and fixing his eyes on him and being much alarmed, he said, what is it, Lord? And he said to him, your prayers and your alms have ascended as a memorial before God. That's cool. That's one of my favorite verses on prayer because it tells us what our prayers mean to God, right? When do we set up a memorial? 
when something is so meaningful to us and so close to our heart that we never want to forget it, we set up a memorial, right? That's what God does with our prayers. Our prayers are not a burden to Him. They're not a bother to Him. It's something that's so precious to Him that it tells us there that they ascend to Him as though it's in a memorial. In Revelation chapter 5, verse 8, it tells us that our prayers are as golden bowls of incense as they come up to God. But then it says this. The angel says to Cornelius there in verse 4, Your prayers and alms have ascended as a memorial before God. Now dispatch some men to Joppa to send for a man named Simon, who's also called Peter. And here's our point for this morning. Why does such a good man charitable man, and well-meaning guy as Cornelius need to call for Peter. Because good is not good enough. Cornelius needs Jesus. And Peter has the gospel. Peter has what Cornelius needs. Cornelius needs what every one of us needs. And that is to hear that no matter how good you try to be, we all still sin. We've all fallen vastly short of the holiness of God. And therefore, every one of us needs forgiveness of our sin. Even a really, really good, genuine guy like Cornelius. So as we ask this question, why is good not good enough? Or as we try to help somebody, the the person that comes along and says, I don't need Jesus because I'm a good person and my goodness should then entitle me to, to come to heaven. The answer to that argument from the Bible is this. There is no such thing as a good person. But I'm a good person, so I should be allowed in. And the Bible says, no, there's no such thing as a good person. Look at... um. Psalm chapter 14, verse 1 right here. There is no one who does good. The Lord has looked down from heaven upon the sons of men to see if there were any who understand and who seek after God, and they have all turned aside. Together they have become corrupt. There is no one who does good, not even one. That's the Bible's view, right? but I'm a good guy. The Bible said, no, 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 no. Look at Isaiah 64, 6. We are all infected. This is the New Living Translation. We are all infected and impure with sin. When we display our righteous deeds, they are nothing but filthy rags. That's what the Bible says of our efforts right there. But I'm a good guy. The Bible says, no, 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 no. Jesus even says it this way. He's speaking to a man that we usually refer to as the rich young ruler. And it says, as he was setting out on a journey, speaking of Jesus, Jesus was traveling around. A man ran up to him, knelt down and asked him, what? Good teacher, what shall I do to inherit life? And Jesus said to him, why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. Now, the point, of the, the point here in its context is that Jesus is trying to get this guy to consider his words. Jesus is saying to him, since you're calling me good, are you also recognizing that I'm God because no one is good except God alone? 
You see, guys, the problem with using the term good when you say, but I'm a good guy, so I should get in. The problem with using the term good to describe ourselves is that good is a relative term, isn't it? It has to be defined. So what is the standard that we're using to define what good is? Humanity usually uses a standard of other people's behavior, don't we? We look around at other people to see whether we're good. So I look around to see if there's somebody doing worse things than I'm doing. Well, that guy's doing worse stuff than I'm doing, so I must be good, right? So what does humanity do? Humanity judges itself by itself. But the Bible doesn't do that. The Bible judges good by the only one who is truly and completely good, God himself. And that's why Jesus said to him, no one's good except God alone. And so therefore the Bible describes us, how? As all having sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Or as the New Living Translation says it, I like this. It says, for everyone has sinned and we all fall short of what? God's glorious standard. God Almighty himself is the standard of good, and we all fall vastly short of it. So the problem then with comparing ourselves with other people to determine whether we're good or not is what? We can always find somebody worse than us. Like if you're not Hitler, you can find somebody worse than you, right? I mean, that's just the way it is. And so therefore, we begin to find somebody else to make us feel better about ourselves. We can look around, we can watch the news, we can see all of the hurtful things that people do and say to ourselves, I don't do any of that, right? You can look on the news and there's a politician ripping a whole bunch of people off or, you know, a policeman that's gone astray or ISIS is over there doing a bunch of stuff and hurtful people, somebody kidnaps somebody, somebody robs somebody, you're watching. So I don't do any of those things. I must be what? Good. I must be a good person. I work hard. I take care of my family. I try to... To, to do well and help other people out, I, I, I'm a good person. So good becomes a difficult term then for us to define with. I like the way my friend, I have a buddy in town and he, he says it this way. He said, heaven's not a good place for good people. It's a perfect place for perfect people and only perfect people go there. That kind of clears things up, doesn't it? That makes it a little bit easier to understand. Because God is holy, that means that He is set apart, literally set apart from anything unholy or anything sinful. That's why sin separated us from God in the first place. He is holy, but not only is He holy, He is just, meaning that He has to judge sin, right? The wages of sin is what? Death, spiritual death right? Eternal separation from God. And so God is holy, held separate from sin and sinners, and he is just requiring judgment from sin and sinners. And if that were the end of the story, it'd be quite tragic. But God is not only holy and not only just, he's also love, right? And that's the beautiful part. And that's where Jesus comes in. And that's why we're going to read here in Colossians chapter 119, for God in all his fullness was pleased to live in Christ, 
meaning that God took on flesh. He took on human form in the person of Jesus Christ. And look at what it says. And through him, God reconciled everything to himself. He made peace with everything in heaven and on earth by means of Christ's blood on the cross. This includes you who were once far away from God. You were his enemy, separated from him with your evil thoughts and actions. Yet now he has reconciled you to himself through the death of Christ in his physical body. And here's the important part. As a result, he has brought you into his own presence. And what are you? You are holy, blameless, and you stand before him without a single fault. That's what my friend was talking about when he said heaven is a perfect place and only perfect people go there. And the only way for anyone, any human, to become perfect in the eyes of God is not by our own effort of being good, but what? Only by having our sins forgiven by the sacrifice of Jesus Christ on the cross. When Jesus hung on that cross, he was bearing carrying on himself the sins of all humanity. That means all the guilt, all the shame, and all the rebellion of humanity was laid upon him. And it tells us that darkness fell over the whole earth at that time. As God the Son was now for the first time in all eternity past, separated from God the Father as he carried our sin. And God the Father poured out the full measure of his wrath and judgment that was meant to be ours was poured out upon Jesus himself. And when that was over, when the price was completely paid, Jesus cried out from the cross, what? It is finished. Meaning our debt, our payment, for our sins, was paid in full. So now, all who come to Christ by faith are seen by God as holy, blameless, and standing before Him without a single fault. Not because I'm a good person, but because Jesus Christ Himself has paid that price for my sins. Yes, I still sin. But when I stand before God on judgment day, all he sees is the righteousness of Christ. 2 Corinthians 5.21 He made him, Jesus, who knew no sin, to be sin on our behalf. Why? So that we might become the righteousness of God in him. So that when I stand before God, all he sees is Christ's righteousness. That's the way that God has offered salvation to humanity. So now all that come to him by faith, repent of their sin, and choose to follow Christ can receive that free gift of eternal life in Christ. Therefore, I have no idea why anybody in the world would want to try to earn it. Would want to try to say, you know what? I'm going to just try to be good enough to get in. But that's still the mindset of so many around us, isn't it? Now, just for a second, since we've got a few more minutes, imagine if that were the system, though. 
right? Setting aside all that we just talked about and the fact that it couldn't be the system because we can never be good enough to come to God on our own merit. But imagine if it were. Imagine if it were a matter of us being good enough to qualify for heaven. That would mean what then? There would have to be some form of grading system and some form of scales, right? Right? If, so let's take those that judge themselves by themselves. I'm better than that guy, so therefore I should get in. There should be some sort of a grading system, some sort of a chart. The problem is, where's the cutoff line? And how do I know I'm ever above it? We, we made some little charts just for fun. So imagine we're comparing... Go to the first one. There you go. So, so we're comparing ourselves by ourselves. The best person that ever lived is at the top. I don't know, Mother Teresa or somebody's way up there. And then at the bottom is the worst person, right? That's Hitler, Bin Laden, you know, Charles Manson. They're down there at the bottom. And then somewhere there's a cut line. Above it's heaven, below it's hell. But how do you know where the cut line is? And how do you know that, that okay, I kind of messed up a little bit and that guy did a little bit good this week. So maybe he passed me and bumped me below the line and now I'm down here and he went above it. So I got to be good this week so I can bump him below the line, right? But, But what if you change the line? We don't know where the line is. Well, that's better. Maybe he takes 75%, right? And maybe it's just the bottom 25 go to hell. But what if it's another way? Go to the next one. What if he only takes the top 25? Or the top 10%. How do I know? Right? Exactly. It's a gigantic uh-oh. There's no assurance of salvation. You'll never know whether you're above or below the cut line. But that's not what Scripture teaches. Scripture tells us this. It says in 1 John 5, 13, These things I have written to you who believe in the name of the Son of Man so that you may what? Know that you have eternal life. Not that you're living in this weird limbo. I don't think God wants us living in this weird limbo. God wants us to have confidence in our salvation so that we can move on to a relationship with Him, so that we can move on to be usable for His kingdom, not wondering if we're saved. We know we're saved, so we can tell people how to get saved, and so that we can rejoice and worship in the joy of our salvation. He wants us to know we're saved so we can move on to those things. But those are the people that are comparing themselves by themselves. What about people that just compare themselves to themselves? Someone that would say, my goods have outweighed my bads. Anybody ever heard that one before? I do more good things than I do bad things, so God ought to let me in, right? And I did a bad thing last week, but I'm going to help somebody out today, so that should even the scales. So we got another set of scales here, just for fun, right? The goods and the bads. Imagine that system. But what happens in this system? What if, like, I was doing good early in life, and then I kind of messed up and turned away from the Lord, and I didn't do good for a while, and I kind of went on a little bit of a tear, but then I came back and I did good for a while, but then I kind of fell a little bit and got tempted, but then I came back and did good. Man, my scale's going like, I don't ever know where I'm at. But what, even worse than that, what if you spent the first 50 of your years hurting people? like doing damage. You were like doing all kinds of damage. And then at the very end of your life, you, you receive some, you know, terminal diagnosis and you go, man, I want to turn it around and go to heaven, but your scales are like this. And you're like, I'll never be able to get my scales back up in time. There's no hope for you. 
You see, I, I think people that think along those lines probably aren't making scales and charts like we are here, but that's exactly the system that they've trusted in, right? They, they trust themselves to save themselves. They, they've put their faith in their ability to be good enough. God made an infinitely better way, didn't he? He knows we can't be good enough. And even if those systems were possible, listen to me, God loves you too much to leave your soul and your eternal salvation up to your ability to behave well and perform well. He says, I'm not leaving it up to your ability to be good today. I'm not going to watch your scales go up and down, wonder if you're above and below the cut line. Instead, what Jesus said was this, John 5, 24. Truly I say to you, he who hears my words and believes him who sent me, what? Has eternal life. Does not come into judgment, but is passed out of death into life. He says, you're not good enough to make the cut. I'll go in your place, and you're still going to make mistakes for the rest of your life, but if you come and repent... I'll cover those. And so the final thing that I want to point out about our friend Cornelius this morning is that he was a genuine seeker of, of truth. And what did God do? God sent the gospel, right? When God sees a sincere heart, when he sees somebody seeking truth, what does he do? He meets them, doesn't he? Remember just a few weeks ago, the Ethiopian eunuch down on that desert road, one man wanting to know the truth, and God was willing to take Philip and send him down there. God will meet you in the moment if you really genuinely want to know truth. I feel like it's worth asking this morning if there's anybody here this morning that wants to surrender their life to Christ, who's sitting here going, you know what? I've tried it. I've tried to be in the scales. That's exactly where I am. I've tried to be that good person. I feel like I've kind of been a good person, but now I find out that good's not good enough. I need my sins forgiven by a holy God. If that's you, I want to ask you to do a bold thing. Just stand up right where you are, and I'm going to lead you in a prayer of repentance. If there's anybody here this morning, right on. Right on, brother. Anybody else? All right, bro. I'm going to lead you in a prayer, okay? Let's bow together. Lord Jesus, I've tried to do it on my own. And I have fallen way short. Lord Jesus, I need you to come and forgive my sin. Lord Jesus, I now trust you with my life. I surrender my life to you. And I choose to follow you. In Jesus' holy name, amen. Amen. Brother, if you believe that in your heart, you are saved. With that, I feel like we should worship. What do you guys think? You ready? Lord Jesus, as we worship you now, fill this place with your presence. May we know that you're here. May we remind ourselves that we were lo once lost, separated from you, but now we belong to you. 
We thank you for this young man that has given his life to you. And in that, we rejoice with the angels of heaven this morning. Lord, come and inhabit the, the praises of your people now. In Jesus' holy name, amen.